Don't make me start singing from the Secret Garden musical. I'd have a champagne brunch every day if I could. Yeah, and at this point, John Lithgow comes in. I mean, he is fairly charming. He could be the Antichrist. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that can't come with you to the Townsends, so you'll have to make some excuse. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are married. Though it could be dissolved with a minimum of discomfort. Well, that's good to know. (laughs) We have two new countries to report this week. We have listeners from Curaçao and Croatia. Welcome. Yes. And now we have telegrams from our cousins. We received a scan of an actual honest-to-goodness telegram from Cousin Kimberly in New York, so we'll be sure to post that on Twitter and Facebook so you can check it out for yourself. We don't want to ruin the surprise of what the telegram actually says, so yeah. you'll have to go check it out on your own on your own steam. <laughs> also, a Cousin Sandy, one of our very first listeners, writes... Hello, Cousins Kelly and Tom. I just wanted to let you know that you are my number one favorite podcast. I get excited whenever I see that there is a new episode to listen to. I am also very excited that you don't worry about how long each show is. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and so many of them are concerned about length. It usually takes me two days to listen to a full show, because I only listen in my car, but that is just fine with me. My only concern is when you finish season two. Will you be done with it before the next season begins? I sure hope not. I might go through withdrawal. Do you have other plans just in case? Maybe more fashion backwards or Tom repeats history just to fill the void? Very truly yours, Cousin Sandy, a.k.a. Dame Chatelaine. Aw, it's so cute that we could now cause a void. <laughs> yes. Now I know how dark matter feels. <laughs> Yeah, but to address a couple of your points, first of all, you know, we'll keep making these as long as they have to be. That's right. I think we're getting a little bit better Yeah. Uh, about having them be so... But everybody is always like, yeah, bring it on. Make it three hours. I don't care. Yeah. I, however, do care as the person who edits these things. <laughs> but still, rest assured, our commitment to quality assurance... That's right. ...will ensure many, many long episodes to come. <laughs> As far as our hiatus or finishing up season two, mm-hmm. we'll be done. This is uh, episode five, correct? Yeah. So including the Christmas special, that's only about four more weeks. Correct. So we'll be done well ahead yes. of the <laughs> premiere of Downton Abbey in the Americas. I believe that's happening in early early winter of 2013. So okay. we've got a really long wow. time. No, it's a very long hiatus. <laughs> kind of cruel, yeah. actually. Agreed. I feel like we should... Uh, Come up with some sort of, you know, adorable fan mail scheme for Julian Fellows. You know, right. send him send him a bunch of uh, little rag dogs for good luck or something. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I mean, we won't be doing new Downton recaps until that point. However, yes, because we like you guys and we want to make sure uh, that you have something to do with your free time. <laughs> Uh, and so we have something to do yeah. until Downton comes back. We are planning to cover a couple of other shows, some movies. You know, we had mentioned before, we definitely want to try to do Gosford Park. Right. Uh, we want to try to do... Well, there's the Up Yours Downs... Or <laughs> the Upstairs Downstairs, the new one that yeah, came out. Yeah, there's the PBS series Manor House. Oh, Julian Fellows Titanic. That was what right, I was Right, right, right. Uh, so there's a lot of options, and we've had a lot of really great suggestions from Cousins 
So we're going to compile all of those and kind of just run a poll. Mm-hmm. And you all can come and vote and see you know, what you're most interested in. We do reserve the right to overrule just based on what we have access to right. immediately. But that'll just, you know, give us a good sense of sort of what you all want to hear us talk about. Mm-hmm. And uh, we will be, at that point, we will probably switch to a bi-weekly right. podcast just because uh, we we need to maintain our sanity. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> But yeah, but I mean, we're really looking forward to it. Uh, we're excited to check out a lot of the stuff that the cousins have recommended to us. Yeah, and uh, we'll be we'll be in good shape. You know, well, I'm excited to branch out from Downton Abbey because we have been living and breathing it for quite a while. It's now. It's true. And we we be really nice have to get some some fresh material to yes, work with for sure. So uh, we'll be sure and post on Twitter and Facebook, etc. Once we actually have that poll available for everybody, probably on the Tumblr as well. Although I feel like the Tumblr is the Edith of our social networking, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> At least we know we'll have a social networking platform to use in our old age. <laughs> anyway, moving on to our final telegram from Cousin Marcia in Terre Haute. My dear cousins Kelly and Tom, I just discovered your podcast less than a week ago whilst jonesing for Downton. I have to tell you, I have never loved two people more in my life. I also want to thank you for giving me a speck of street cred when you retweeted me last week at Sia1222. About seven months ago, I moved from Chicago to Terre Haute, Indiana, and I have not yet found anyone to match my witty, my witty snarkery quite so well. I recently made the four-hour drive home to Chicago, and all I listened to were your podcasts. I am sure all of the neighboring drivers thought me crazy with all my laughter and fist-pumping in agreement. I should probably add that there may have been some swerving into the other lane. Oh, my. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> Wear your seatbelt. Drive safe. (laughs) This is the official up yours downstairs position. (laughs) She continues, I love everything about this podcast, and even though I love him, the hatred of Bates is amazing, mostly because he kind of looks like the guy that chose being a priest over marrying me, which may just out Bates Bates himself. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. We feel your pain. Mm -hmm. Not directly, but by proxy. (laughs) Yes. She says, I also want you to know that I appreciate you guys noticing that there are no black people on the show. I know black people existed in Edwardian England, and as an awesome black girl, I would love to see some black folks in the countryside. I mean, Grantham Arms isn't going to clean itself. Give a sister a job. I can't wait to hear what you think of the remaining episodes. Listen to you crack each other up and learn more about history and fashion, all while trying not to cause any traffic accidents. All my listening loyalty, Cousin Marcia. Thank you very much, Cousin Marcia. That's yes, very indeed. exciting. And also an update. I am still trying to get a copy of the book Black Edwardians slash contact the author of said book directly uh, to try and get a little insight mm-hmm. on what the Black Edwardian experience was. Right. Evangeline Holland, who runs our favorite website, Edwardian Promenade, has some information on it, but it's primarily focused uh, on North America mm-hmm. uh, and just kind of how uh, society evolved. Uh, for black people at that time. But don't worry, we are still working on it. Hopefully we will we will get there. Yes. Oh, and what I neglected to mention before is that we're also talking about the possibility of during the hiatus doing just a standalone Tom Repeats History slash Fashion Backwards episode. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of really interesting stuff about this period that doesn't necessarily relate to any particular episode. Right. So that, I'm sure, could go on for days. <laughs> yes. So uh, rest assured, there's plenty of content out there. <laughs> yeah. 
And uh, now it's time to announce our, our cousin of the week. Tom, would you like to announce our cousin of the week? I would. Our cousin of the week is cousin Jody Lynn from Johnston, Rhode Island. She is always, always contributing to the discussion I on Facebook. I don't think we've posted anything she hasn't liked. That, that's I think right. she's liked it all. Yeah. Which is very gratifying. No, and she's very generous about sharing links and just, you know, getting into conversations and wondering sort of, you know, about different actors and things. So thank you so much, Cousin Jody, and congratulations. Yes. Wear the crown proudly. <laughs> All right. I think uh, I think it might be time to get down to some recapping. All right. And we open on Amyan. We think is how you pronounce that. Amien. Amin? Amin. We're not sure. Yes. Anyway, it's 1918 and there's lots of explosions. <laughs> that there are. Matthew is getting dressed by William. They're worried that the Germans are going to chuck everything they've got at them. William suggests that they chuck it right back. That's which, not very helpful. Right. <laughs> you can't <laughs> chuck a bullet back. Believe me. I mean, I've tried. <laughs> I suppose you can chuck it back. I just don't think anybody will be that impressed. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. No, because, I mean, how do you, you know, especially, like, if it's pierced your aorta, can you, like, get in there and, like, be like, ah, you may have killed me, but I'm throwing a bullet at you. Ah, Jerry, I hate you. <laughs> you can do that. I just don't know that it'll advance the This cause. may be why I've never been in the military. <laughs> Out in the trenches, they're getting ready for an advance. Yeah, Matthew's trying to be Henry V, and, uh, in my opinion, fails miserably. Right. That's uh, pretty much the story of World War One. Mm, fair enough. <laughs> In general. No, he's asking that guy, he's like, oh, how's that cold, soldier? And he's like, oh, it's a little better. It's like, well, great. I'm <laughs> glad you're well enough to go out there and die. Yeah. And they then proceed to, uh, you know, go out there and die. Yeah, and they're all, I mean, despite his failings as a Henry V stand-in, I just, I just can't get that enthused, <laughs> you know? I'm like, I'd rather be doing something else. Again, Never fought in a war. Yeah, I just, yeah. I just don't understand why you would ever take anything seriously enough to kill someone. About they, it. they would all rather be doing something else too. Hence the shooting for cowardice that is going on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the battle starts. <laughs> yes, and they're all, you know, they're shooting and running and being manly in their uh, their doughboy outfits. Or no, are they doughboys or is that just Americans? I think that's just Americans. Well, we'll see about that. You know, they're Tommies. Okay, so they're Tommy outfits. Yeah. And this is intercut with some scenes back in Downton of Daisy and Mary acting all weird. Like, Daisy just goes like, woo! And Mrs. Patmore's like, <laughs> And Daisy's like, I felt like someone just walked over me grave. Then we have Mary. Like, Mary drops a teacup. Yes. And it looks like she was asleep and, like, now she's not asleep. It's just very, it's very not well done. I'm yeah. not super impressed. You know, the, the implication here is that William and Matthew are in danger and right. they're having some psychic connection, which I don't buy. I have felt that my many lovers were in danger many times and I never flinched once. Well, did any of them die in battle? God, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Also, once again, why don't we get to see Lavinia flinching? Huh? What's wrong? Anyway. Yeah. Was just because she's got a little pug nose, she can't have feelings. <laughs> That's right. I like how we've become Team Lavinia. Just like no, suddenly. I never expected it. No. but here we are. She's, yeah. all, she's all right. <laughs> Better than Edith, anyway. Congratulations, fictional character. You have won us over. <laughs> <laughs> I bet Julian Fellows is flinching right now. <laughs> like, oh, someone likes Lavinia. <laughs> <laughs> O'Brien shakes McGee awake. 
and tells her and Lord Grantham to come downstairs and Orion, not a face I want to see in the middle of the night. Yeah, like she's not she's not a looker when she's dressed for the day in her nightgown. It's and, ooh, yeah. Oh, and uh, we should point out at this point. Yes. <laughs> nearly forgot again, but we have declared the character ceasefire this week, and it is McGee. McGee. So you can expect this episode to be forty-five minutes shorter than normal. <laughs> oh, and that means I can't do my impression. It does mean that. Oh, that's. Well, I'll just do it by myself in the mirror later. <laughs> There's always next week, Kelly. I hope so. <laughs> we cut to Lord Grantham and all the Crawley women are downstairs, I assume, in the small library. Anytime they're anywhere that there's no soldiers, we're just assuming it's the small library. Right. Because that's what we've been told. Yes. Molesley has come up to the house and brought a telegram that says Matthew has been wounded and is being sent to Downton or... I'm guessing to the hospital in the village right. to be to be treated. But he's concerned that he's not done the right thing. Mm. I love how the servants are just like, everything they do, they're constantly apologizing for. They're <laughs> yeah. like, I did this really nice thing for you. I hope that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Please don't hit me. <laughs> Lord Grantham says, you know, of course, you know, Isabel would have wanted to bring it there and she wouldn't mind that they have opened it. You know, presumably since Lord Grantham has all these connections right? Uh, that could possibly help Matthew in this situation. Well, possibly being the Earl of Grantham, he's entitled to open any telegram in the county. <laughs> <laughs> it's for old man Mosley. Give it here. <laughs> I'm the Earl of Grantham. <laughs> so Cora is very concerned about Isabel and yeah. how she's going to get back. Right, which, how she... I, I I assume, you know, boat and train the same way she got over there in yeah. the first place. What, well, like, I think she's mostly concerned about how she's going to find out. Although she does work for the missing and wounded inquiry. Right. But I'm just assuming she probably didn't listen to anything that Isabel said. Can <laughs> yeah. I say that? Does that mean? Ooh, well, we can't help it. Okay. Um, anyway, <laughs> what, you know, they're just, they're not on good terms. So Right. I'm just assuming that she basically... Once Isabel said she was leaving, right. Cora was like, good, that's done. Right. I don't need to pay attention to you anymore. We're just making fun of her behavior in a previous episode. Okay, okay. There's our loophole. All right, so yeah. this is like a time-traveling bullet. <laughs> yes. So Mary's down there acting all spacey still, probably from when she dropped that teacup. Carson comes in. He he asks what the news is. And then we pan to the door, revealing all the servants who aren't Thomas or the mystery servants. Yeah. They've all woken up and, and come downstairs being all concerned. However, they should be concerned because they want to know about William because right. he was Matthew's servant. So obviously he uh, he would have been nearby. Yes. And Lord Grantham hasn't heard anything about William, but he promises to let them know uh, as soon as possible. Bates, helpfully for a change, points out that William's father will have had a telegram mm. if anything has happened to right, William. Right. So Edith offers to drive to William's family's farm in the morning to find out what's going on. For God's sake, keep her away from farms. <laughs> William's going to have a new mommy. <laughs> Everyone, you know, then kind of solemnly files back out to bed and, and Mary pulls Lord Grantham aside and promises not to keep anything from her. She makes him yes, promise. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. He kisses her cheek. He doesn't say yes. I assume he's just wondering where Isis is. Right. And again, that's not something she should have to make him promise. He should just not be keeping things from her. Well, but he did it in the last episode. Oh, I'm I not mean, saying I, I'm. she's right to do again, so. Again, we have discussed on many occasions, he doesn't like his daughters. <laughs> yeah. He just doesn't like them. Yeah. He doesn't want to tell them anything. I mean, just I just think he's freaked out by women. I think he's a Capricorn. That's <laughs> what I think. That makes sense. 
out in the uh, courtyard of failure. <laughs> yes. Bates is polishing some shoes. Anna comes out to say that William is in a hospital in Leeds, apparently in very bad condition. Mm-hmm. And then Bates is very weird in this scene. Yeah. Well, Bates says, I'm very sorry. As if Anna's talking about somebody that he's never met. I'm like, you worked with William for years. You stuck up for him on yes. numerous occasions. It's like, what, what is wrong with you? So many things. Yeah. So many things wrong with Mr. Bates. <laughs> but anyway, Anna, being the boss lady that she is, just says she feels terrible for Matthew and for William. And so she asks Mr. Bates if he would walk to the church with her so that they can say a prayer for William and Matthew. Because, yeah, that's that's going to help. Yeah. And sure. Bates graciously condescends to do so. Mm-hmm. At the hospital, the Dowager Countess is talking to Major Clarkson and insisting that William be allowed to have a bed at Downton. He says no. He says that, you know, the Leeds Hospital will have their own arrangements and he can't pull strings and make a special case. Edith offers to nurse William herself and that it won't take up any manpower or anything, but Dr. Clarkson well, says no. who's going to hand out the mail <laughs> and keep the men from, you know, diddling the maids? Nobody can do that. Okay. That's, that can't be done. <laughs> But yes, Major Clarkson seems to believe that he has some say in this and refuses to make a special exception, as he regularly does and regularly fails at. Mm-hmm. The Dowager Countess storms out and uh, says, this is what happens when you let little people get power. It goes to their head like strong drink. That's what the Tsar said. <laughs> uh, of course, what went to his head was not strong drink, but a bullet. Yes. I'm just curious how much of this sort of special exception stuff was going on back then because it's like i just i don't know i mean how strict were the regulations i just sort of assume that in a gigantic organization everybody's pulling strings and you know running little games and things Mm -hmm. like that like it just it's unavoidable when you get that many people all working in the same and i'm not saying that they're you know the crawley's hearts aren't in the right places Mm -hmm. i'm just i'm just curious Mm -hmm. you know sort of how the the aristocratic old guard, you know, having to interact this much with the military, yeah. you know, in reality. Right, You right. know, because yeah. I feel like they're really riding roughshod in a lot of ways. But mm-hmm. anyway. Well, I think it's, I would imagine that at this, particularly by this point in the war, it's a new experience with Britain where the nobility isn't actually running the army mm. as they always would have been in, in, you know, the past thousand years. Interesting. Yeah. Down in the servants' hall, Thomas and O'Brien are proving that they, too, can pretend to be sad. (laughs) And uh, O'Brien sort of whispers under her breath that she wishes she had not written a letter to Vera Bates, telling her that Bates was back at Downton, what with all the other drama going on. Daisy comes in and starts talking about how William's not allowed to come to the village hospital because he's not an officer. And uh, Mrs. Patmore and O'Brien decry the lot of the lower class and the fact that, you know, all the lower class boys who went over... You know, they, they took exactly the same risks as the officers, and right. the fact that they're being shut out of the best care and the care that's close to their loved ones is inexcusable. And Thomas surprises everyone by agreeing very forcefully. Yeah. So finally, someone's managed to unwittingly find common ground with Thomas. Yeah. Well, he says he's a, a working-class boy. A working-class lad. Yeah, a working-class lad like me, and he's sick of seeing his lot get uh, 
screwed. I forget mm-hmm. what word I think thrown is. over, yeah. passed over, something like that. Yeah. No, but his point is well taken. The yeah. name of this podcast is Up Yours Downstairs. That's right. I, I agree. And well, then, though, I think this is where you see the nobility insinuating itself in and saying, well, if we can't run the army, we're going to make sure right. that we manage to survive it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. In the small library again, I suppose? I think it's Mary's room, actually. Oh, okay. Mary is... Oh, that's right. She's she's packing some things up, and she's telling Lord Grantham that uh, she's going to take some things to the hospital so she can sit with Matthew. She's read that it's important that somebody be with them right from the beginning when they're first wounded to see any signs of change in their condition. Mm-hmm. Lord Grantham interrupts her to say that McGee has written to Lavinia, and Mary says, oh, good, and insists that she stay in Downton and not by herself down in the village. Yeah, Lord Grantham just looks at it. It's weird because I can't read his facial expressions because... Well, I think he is still assuming, like everybody has assumed from the beginning, that Mary hates Lavinia. Uh-huh. Which she never has. No, she's ever. been very nice to her. Yeah, she's been completely classy the whole time. Mm-hmm. As, you know, rightly so. She has well, no grounds to complain. Well, she had that opportunity before Matthew, you know, shipped off again. Right. Where she could have told Matthew how she felt... And, you know, she ran into Lavinia, and she was just like, I can't hurt this other person mm-hmm. just to get what I want. Right. So, you know, I guess I guess I kind of read it as Lord Grantham's, like, shock and awe at Mary's ability to grow and change. She's like, this family hasn't grown or changed for 70 years. <laughs> right. In the church, Bates and Anna walk toward the altar, and Bates tells Anna she should have a church wedding, but in the most dickish way possible. Yeah. He's like, I'll be looking like a fool. Like... What what a charmer. By the way, when we get married, I'll be miserable. Ugh. Anyway, Anna classily responds that she would much rather have the right man than the right wedding. Uh, sweetie, the way you're going, you've got neither. <laughs> Run! Run now! Run away! He can't catch you! He walks with a cane! <laughs> what if he hops on that hay cart? Ugh. Well, that's just a risk she's going to have to take. Sadly, Anna does not run. They they get up to the altar and she's talking about all all the difficulties at Downton and how they make her more grateful for her own happiness with Mr. Bates mm-hmm. and because uh, he's been talking about that he's got uh, there's it's a two step process I guess to get a divorce and he's got the first step but he's not got the second step and he says the second step is just a formality right and it's fine and it's totally gonna happen any day now yeah which is not at all the ravings of a delusional <laughs> a battered spouse. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but Anna's just, you know, trying to make lemonade out of lemons and saying, oh, you know, it's not as bad being stuck in this will-we-won't-we engagement <laughs> as it is to be William or Matthew or any of their related family members. It's true. So then they, they kneel down and they hold hands for a minute and they pray and it's uh, it's very sweet. Yeah. Up in the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore is insisting that the old lady... Dowager Countess will find some way for William to come home. And Daisy is feeling ashamed for having uh, lied to William about loving him and, and, you know, getting engaged with him when she does not, in fact, want to marry Mm -hmm. him. Mrs. Patmore, of course, doesn't understand why she feels bad about it, Mm -hmm. you know, and tells her that, oh, you're just being good, whatever. But that does not comfort Daisy. And she is in tears when good old Vera Bates wanders into the room. Further cementing O'Brien's role as resident soothsayer and a killjoy. Yeah. Because like, she was like, oh, Vera Bates, and ah, there she is! <laughs> yes. It's like Bloody Mary. <laughs> 
you say her name once, she comes to Downton. No, I know. Every time she enters a room, there should be like a thunderclap. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see Downton Abbey like through the lens of Scooby Doo. <laughs> Turns out it was Mrs. Bates the whole time. <laughs> She's the Kaiser. <laughs> Upstairs, the Dowager Countess is shouting hilariously into the phone. What a newfangled contraption. Yes. Uh, she's demanding to speak to the Marcus of Flincher. Because there can only be one Marcus of Flincher. And she expresses disgust with the telephone, asking whether it's a, a means of communication or a method of torture. Mm-hmm. She finally gets shrimpy <laughs> on the line, which from now on... Anytime anybody calls me, I'm going to say, Shrimpy, is that you? It's not Violet. And uh, subsequently, I will have no friends. Hooray. So Shrimpy's on the line, and the Dowager Countess says she's not going to beat around the bush, wants to know who she might know on the Leeds General Infirmary Board. Yes. So she is, she's working her upper-class magic to whisk William to the comfort and happiness of Downton Village. Vera dun, 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 <laughs> announces that things are not settled between her and Bates. Bates and Anna, she is, she's talking to mm-hmm. both of them. Uh, she says it wasn't settled that Bates would come back to Downton and take up with his floozy again. Hey, hey, say that to my face, Vera. You're the floozy. She is. We have it well documented that, that you were untrue. That's right. Yeah, way before Mr. Bates. And he hasn't even, like, done anything. Yes, why don't you shut your dirty mouth? <laughs> But she's not going to shut her dirty mouth. She is going to sell her story about Lady Mary and the Turkish gentleman. He has a name! Look, Kelly, none of them can pronounce Pamuk. I just feel like (laughs) if there's an afterlife, he's just like watching this whole scene unfold. And he's like, my name is Kamal! How hard is that? It's really a pretty simple name to pronounce. I don't understand. Anyway. Well, that's the thing. It's like, look, if this guy's not important enough that you bother to learn his name... Why does anyone care that he died or what he may or may not have put inside Lady Mary? <laughs> like, what is the big deal if he's such an unperson? Yeah. But she also implicates Anna in the story. Correct. And Anna awesomely says, it's got nout to do with me. Because I just like when people say nout. Yes. Well, it's a good thing we're watching a show set in Yorkshire. Don't make me start singing from the Secret Garden musical. Because you know I will. <laughs> I do know that. Anyway, Bates asks Vera if... If he hadn't come back to Downton, would would she still have caused such a fuss or, you know, made trouble? And she says, wouldn't you like to know? Or some other childish retort. Yeah, this is, she practically cackles and disappears into a puff of smoke. <laughs> no, and it's like, that is a stupid question, though. Because it's like, look, it doesn't make a difference. Because isn't the whole point of you getting a divorce from her so that you can be with Anna? Right. Like, like, if you can't be with Anna, then what's the point of anything? Right. Well, it was settled that you were going to take up with your floozy again. That That's what a divorce is. Yeah. You know, if people really cited their reasons for divorce, it wouldn't be irreconcilable differences. It would be to take up with this floozy I met. <laughs> Just when I was starting to wonder why there was no Branson in this episode, there he is! Hooray! He's out with the car, as per usual. Yep. The license plate is LA5678, which I think is a Jim Morrison lyric. <laughs> Sybil asks if Branson will drive her to the hospital so she can be with Mary when Matthew arrives. And uh, he creepily asks if Mary is still in love with Matthew and accuses all rich people of not having feelings. Right. And Sybil classily insists they do have feelings and just leaves it there. Yeah. 
And you can see in Sybil's face that she's maybe starting to have some second thoughts at this point. She's like, uh, Maybe I should get you fired. Yeah, I hear there's some cute farmers around. <laughs> Chauffeurs are really a dime a dozen when you get down to it, but a man who can work the land. Yeah. No, and it's just, I don't know. It's just so weird. I'm like, I can't imagine that, you know, Baron Fellow is meant for Branson to seem this creepy. Yeah. But there's just this weird underlying subtext, and I can't decide if it's part of his performance or just part of the writing. Yeah. But he's just so mean Well, he's these just... last couple of episodes. And I mean, I guess... Well, and it's like, look, if he's going to be mad... Mm-hmm. Then let him be mad. I feel like he's being forced to straddle this, like, yeah. we want more Branson fanfic line. <laughs> like, he can't be all bad. Yeah. You know, either, you know, let him have some genuine emotions that he's not being passive-aggressive about. Like, yeah. it's just weird. No, because we liked him so much before. I know. Yeah. Down in Leeds Hospital, William's father is sitting by William's bedside. He is breathing heavily and with difficulty. The Dowager Countess asks if Lord Flincher's orders have been acted upon to take William to Yorkshire. Uh, the doctor says that they have. And he also heard a cracking story about Lady Mary and the Turkish gentleman. Because <laughs> if you recall, yes. the Flinchers are the household where the, the nest of rumors kind of began. That's so. right. The doctor says that William is, is dying, mm-hmm. that there's nothing more to be done for him, that there's been too much internal damage with his, his lungs in particular. And he agrees that it is the right thing to do. There's nothing more they can do for him there. And that he, he says, if it was me, I would rather die in a familiar mm-hmm. place surrounded by friends. Then uh, Mr. Mason comes up to the conversation and, and says that, oh, he'll be forced to do better when he's back home. The doctor starts to try and, like, keep Mr. Mason from getting his hopes up. The Dowager Countess interrupts and says that he'll just says that, yes, let's get him home and, and you know, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll just have to says, hope we'll, for the yeah, best. Yeah, we'll, we won't know until he's had a chance to settle down and rest. Right, right. And, you know, he walks away and she's just telling the doctor, you know, sometimes you have to let the blow fall by degrees. Yeah. Because otherwise it's too much to bear. And I'm just sobbing. Yeah. Like, just thinking about it. It's just one of the most, like, humane things we've seen the Dowager Countess do. I mean, we've seen her be catty and we've seen her be pragmatic. Mm -hmm. But now we're seeing this different side of her where, you know, it's the same thing that motivated her to interfere and keep William and Molesley from being called up. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just, you know, these are people that she she wants to take care of. And I think for all of her aristocratic nonsense, as an aristocrat, she does feel it's her responsibility right. to make sure that these people under her charge are taken care of. Right. Oh, and also in this this whole scene, Edith is just sort of standing around awkwardly. And I don't even mean that as anything against Edith. I would be doing exactly the same thing. Like, it's just an uncomfortable mm-hmm. situation for her to be in. Back at the hospital, Major Clarkson comes into the ward where Mary is waiting and tells her that she's going to be far too distressed to see Matthew when he's brought in. But she refuses to leave. Mm-hmm. She says she's she's not very good at, at, at standing back and, and not doing anything, which right. is true. Yes. <laughs> Just ask Mr. Pramuk. <laughs> uh, so anyway, she stands her ground and Major Clarkson is finally like, whatever, I'm so sick of you people. <laughs> uh, but anyway, in comes the zombie Matthew, mm-hmm. all bloody and pale. He's he is stretchered in. Yes. He's unconscious and pumped full of morphine. He's put on his bed and he has a, like a price tag on. Yeah. I mean, it's early triage, but right, right. so it says probable spine damage. Yeah. And he looks... He looks like Darth Vader after he took his helmet off. <laughs> that's, that's what he looks like. 
I want to look upon you <laughs> with my own eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so Sybil's picking up. There's a stack of his his clothing, mm-hmm. and improbably. Mary's good luck charm drops out of that pile, which Sybil wonders, you know, what is this doing here? And Mary's saying, oh, I gave it to him for good luck. And Sybil's like, if only it had worked. And I'm like, do you find that often? Do you often (laughs) find people coming back from the war like, oh, I owe it all to my lucky charm? Well, she doesn't. Okay. Yeah. Other people do. Well, and Mary rightly says that, you know, maybe it did work. He's not dead, Mm -hmm. which is a very good point, Mary. So then Sybil uh, schools Mary in water temperature. You know, <laughs> right. Sybil's trying to explain, you know, they're going to have to cut off his clothes probably. And there's going to be a lot of blood and it's going to be gross. And Mary's like, whatevs. Yeah. You know, how hot should the water be? And Sybil says it should be warm more than hot. Yeah. And it's another good, I think, sister moment there because unlike Major Clarkson, like Sybil does warn Mary just to make sure. But she pretty much thought that Mary would be able to handle it yeah. and is, is pleased that she will be. Mary's like, I carried a dead body half the length of this house. <laughs> I am fine. Yeah. Somewhere downstairs, it's not clear where, we see Daisy looking through an interior window at William being brought in and she's very, you know, she's very teary-eyed. Right. Then on the, <laughs> on the staircase of treachery by the servant's kitchen, Thomas and O'Brien are hanging out like they do. Uh, Thomas tells O'Brien that she shouldn't have written to Mrs. Bates, which, yes, O'Brien said that already. Um, She she says she agrees, and uh, O'Brien realizes that Mrs. Bates wants to ruin the house with scandal, which, you know, none of them want. Mm -hmm. They ruin the house, they won't have jobs. That's right. Or, you know, it would be very hard, I would imagine, if you were working for a family that was ruined to get another position that was comparable. Yeah, Oh, I see you worked at Horror Mansion. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a new attraction at Disney World? Because I would ride that. Just be safe. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> I, I'm thinking like tasteful Mrs. Henderson presents style tableaus, Tom. That's gross. You're gross and weird. Sorry for misinterpreting your intentions to ride Horror Mansion. <laughs> Yeah, Thomas is way out of line in this scene. Yeah. Because that guy has exactly one successful scheme to his name. That's right. Getting shot in the hand, and now he can't masturbate. Like, yeah. that was like a, you know, a one step forward, two steps back plan as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. And it, it looks like O'Brien is finally figuring out that Thomas sucks, which mm-hmm. like, welcome to 1908, O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were all hating Thomas before it was cool. <laughs> Up in Mary's room, Anna is updating Mary on the Bates situation. Snooze. <laughs> yes, uh, and helping her take off her dress. It's that stupid red dress that I hate. That is that. It is that dress. God, I can't wait till this war is over so you can stop wearing that dress. <laughs> Mary offers to try and bring in Sir Richard Carlyle to neutralize Mrs. Bates. So, you know, good thing she's engaged to a monster because... He's going to be very helpful, as it turns out. That's right. In uh, his his private bedroom at Downton Abbey, William is wheezing, but uh, I guess wheezing comfortably because yeah. Edith sends Mr. Mason home, promising William's not going to be alone and that he should get some rest. Yeah. Mr. Mason cries, as do I, yes. as he looks at William and he says, he looks so perfect. How can he be dying? He leaves, and Mrs. Patmore also cries, 
also wonders how William can be dying. And it's very affecting and very sad. It is. Now we're going to find out uh, what exactly it was that William died for. <laughs> in one of our recurring segments, a uh, little ditty we like to call Tom Repeats History. Yeah. So I'm going to uh, just kind of give a quick rundown of World War One as quick as I can here, just because I think for many people, e- even people that are reasonably into history, they don't really know the details of how the war progressed, mm-hmm. just sort of a vague idea of trenches and stuff. That's certainly been true for me. Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah. I know that kid in All Quiet on the Western Front got a hooker one time, and like, that's it. <laughs> right. Which didn't have a lot of strategic significance. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, morale. Yeah. So on the Eastern Front, I don't actually have a lot about it, but at the beginning, Germany's whole plan was that Austria would take the burden of fighting Russia for the most part while Germany fought France. Austria, however, was fighting Serbia because that was their whole plan from the beginning was to take over Serbia, and they lost. Like, they lost to Serbia, which is a much smaller country and was very embarrassing for Austria. So that basically left Germany fighting France, England, and Russia by itself. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of impressive that it went on that long. It is. And they, in fact, ended up beating Russia because Russia, despite having an unbelievable supply of manpower, was just so poorly run and so poor that they had no weapons and no organization and eventually collapsed in the Bolshevik Mm -hmm. Revolution. That's the Eastern Front. The Western Front, Germany started out by attacking through Belgium, which again was their predetermined plan. This was what led Britain into the war. There was all sorts of propaganda about German soldiers like carrying Belgian babies spiked on their bayonets. Ah! Just all sorts of all sorts of things which were not in fact true. You know, crucifying Belgian priests, like ah! all these horrible atrocities that were just made up. Uh-huh. But it was It was the invasion of neutral Belgium that convinced Britain to join in the war with France. They then... So the French were spreading these rumors? uh, Or the Belgians? You know, pretty much everybody. Because, again, the powers that be in Britain pretty much wanted a war. The powers that be everywhere wanted a war. It was just how they got the simple-minded populace to go along with it was by spreading these rumors. And a lot of this was actually the the press, uh, in particular Lord Northcliffe, was the Rupert Murdoch of his day, pretty Mm -hmm. much ran all the big newspapers, and he was very much Mm pro-war, so he was helping to publicize these atrocity stories, which also sold newspapers. So they then went through Belgium and into France, uh, made good progress for the first few months of the war, got to within about 43 miles of Paris, but were then finally stopped at the First Battle of the Marne, uh, which is a river in France. They retreated a few miles, dug in, and for the next six months, both sides kept trying to outflank each other to the north and failed. So eventually the front ran from the Belgian coastline down to Switzerland and didn't move for the next three years, Wow! essentially. So that was 1914. In 1915, the French attacked in the region of Champagne twice, accomplished nothing. The British attempted to launch some supporting attacks, But after some initial successes, their complete failures of logistics and communication caused their attacks to stall. Wikipedia says that these battles proved the cavalry would have no significant role. Despite that, the British did not figure that out and kept attempting to use cavalry throughout the rest of the war. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing, with Britain in particular, but Britain throughout this war was attempting to fight the Napoleonic Wars, Uh again. That was what they knew, that was the tactics and the strategy, and they just kept 
being baffled that it wasn't working. Well, I guess, is it the Germans who are pioneering all of these techniques, like all of the new warfare, or...? Um, I mean, really, nobody was pioneering that much. I mean, what happened was that after that first offensive got stalled, the Germans settled in and went on the defensive and committed to it. Mm -hmm. And so they, to an extent, pioneered trenches and fortifications, barbed wire, all these sort of things. But it was really sort of inherent in the new technologies, primarily the machine gun, Mm -hmm. which just represented, you know, one person with a machine gun could hold off 50 people, assuming they were well sheltered. And it was those things, you know, it didn't take much in the way of tactics well, I guess I'm thinking more, and this may just come up later, but in terms mm-hmm. of like you know the mustard gas and you know things of, of that mm-hmm. nature. Well, the Germans did start; they were the ones that started using gas. Okay. Um, I, well, I guess just I guess just my question is: they're the ones who are fighting a new war. That's you know, I mean, they're they're sort of yeah, I making mean, everybody else right. You know, they, they didn't go into this saying, "Oh, let's fight the the Napoleonic War." Right. It's true that that. That's largely true. I don't want to give them a pass either because they were also incompetent in a variety of ways. Okay. But that, that's more true of them, certainly, than either the British or the okay. French. They basically recognized early on that defense trumped offense in this right. war. Well, and I guess, you know, my, my reason for that pursuing that line of questioning is just that maybe that's why they were able to fend them off for such a long time mm-hmm. because they were kind of thinking a little bit more outside the box. Well, that that is true. And actually that the German trenches were much better constructed all throughout the war than the British or French because they knew that they were in a trench warfare and were being defensive, whereas the British and French thought of all of their trenches as temporary. Oh. They're like, this is just for now until we have the big breakthrough that's coming any day now, so there's no point in making too much of them. Gotcha. 1916 had the two biggest battles of the war, the Battle of Verdun, which was the French, it lasted from February to December, achieved nothing, and led to 700,000 deaths. What? 700,000 deaths. And that's not casualties. That's dead. Wow. Um, God, that's just an unbelievable amount of people. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even wrap my head around that. Yeah. One author that, that I like, whose last name is Wolf, and his first name I can't remember, but wrote a book called In Flanders Fields, uh, he says that that battle pretty much destroyed France as a military power mm-hmm. to this day. Like, they, what they lost in the Battle of Verdun, they've never recovered from. I, and despite the stereotypes that are around in America, for most of its history, French was badass military. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, the well, Napoleonic Wars, the Napoleonic Wars were France versus everybody uh-huh. else, and they damn near won. Well, and, I mean, prior to that, they were always a huge military power. They were a huge power player. And you right. don't become a power player without having, you know, yeah, the, some, some guns to back it up. Right. And also, Americans, guess how old this country is? <laughs> yeah. Just how old is it? Yeah. You're right. Sit down. Shut up. France <laughs> is awesome. Agreed. In the middle of the Battle of Verdun, the British launched the Battle of the Somme. Uh, which, which we saw. Yes. That was um, I think that was the first scene of this of this series of Downton Abbey. Yeah. And it was it la- it went from July to November. That one caused about 300,000 deaths total, split about evenly between each side. It's been calculated that it cost two casualties for every centimeter of ground that it gained. Yeah, the the first day of that battle, bloodiest day in the history of the British army, 60,000 casualties in the first day. Wow. Yeah. 
So that was 1916. It's just crazy that these battles last this long, just because if you contrast it with something like the American Civil War, mm-hmm. no battle in that war lasted beyond a period of days. Right. You know, I mean, it was it was over. Yeah. And it's just crazy how in just under a century, mm-hmm. how much more efficient mankind became at killing each other. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, all of these battles are to an extent just sort of arbitrary dividing markers put in. Yeah, because well, I mean, if you're in the trenches, you're just shooting at anything that moves. Right, exactly. The, the term that they used was normal wastage, which was, I forget, I think it was something like 15,000 casualties a month. Oh my God, it's yeah. so horrible. Yeah, it is. The, uh... I hope you're all enjoying my commentary on this, of just <laughs> decrying the atrocity of it all. <laughs> yes. So that was 1916. So at this point, the British and French had had plenty of opportunities to realize that what they were doing wasn't working. They were doing the same thing every time. No element of surprise ever because they felt that they needed to bombard the other lines with artillery for days in advance of an advance. So the Germans always knew when an attack was coming and were always prepared to meet it. In 1917, France made another attack in bad terrain with no surprise and the soldiers started mutinying. Like, entire divisions would just show up drunk and refuse to attack. Well, good. Yeah. Well, I was just about to say, like, at what point, like, how, I just, it blows my mind. Like, the people, you know, the the, the upper echelon people and the people on the ground, it's like, at what point, you know, because everybody has to be thinking it. Like, come on, seriously? Mm-hmm. This isn't worth it. Yeah. Like, they weren't even fighting over anything. Mm-hmm. They were fighting over, like, some bullshit. Yeah. And that guy got shot. Yeah. And, like, that was, like, there wasn't... There's no reason. I don't remember the specific details of your previous Tom Rapunzel history, <laughs> yeah. but I do remember that there was no reason that this had to happen. That is correct. Well, again, the whole thing was a war between Austria and Serbia, which at this point has already been virtually over mm-hmm. for years, and we're not talking about Austria or Serbia, are Good we? point. Yeah. We sure aren't. Yeah. So that happened in the summer of 1917. The French started mutinying, and the, they were barely able to keep it together, but they, they didn't do much in the way of attacking. They were just trying to keep their army from completely dissolving. Then in the late summer and into the fall in Paskendale in Belgium, the British attacked again. And this, not as many people died, about 200,000 compared to Verdun or some, but just like there was no excuse for them at this point to be still trying these tactics. It was horrendously muddy the terrain that they were trying to attack in was ridiculous for soldiers to be advancing in. At one point, one of the staff officers was brought up to the front for some reason, is driving along, and as he's getting closer and closer and seeing the terrain, he just start, he broke down in tears and started crying and said, do we really send people to fight in this? And the driver, who was a frontline soldier, just was like, yeah, it's worse farther up. So that, so that was 1917. In 1918, Germany, for the first time, mounted another offensive because at that point, Russia, as we recall, has collapsed at this point Mm -hmm. after the revolution. So all their troops from the Eastern Front, they brought over to the Western Front and go on the offensive, gain about 40 to 60 miles, more effective than any of what the British and French done for the last three years. Because again, the British and French had never really emphasized fortifications. Mm -hmm. However, they lost more men than they could afford to lose in this offensive. They got stopped. And at this point, America had joined the war. Uh, America had joined the war because Germany refused to stop sinking passenger ships with their submarines. Right. They had this crazy, they thought that they could blockade Britain and France into submission and thought that this was worth the risk of America entering the war. 
which was a ridiculous thing for them to think. Well, because they've been shoring up, you know, 18-year-olds. Right. For, you know, the war's been going on for four years at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a lot of people. Yeah. But and even uh, if everybody's not totally gung-ho, like, there's got to be some, you know, jingoistic people who are like, you know, fuck the Kaiser! Right. Well, so not only did they sink passenger ships, some of which had Americans on them, but they also sent a telegram to Mexico inviting Mexico to attack the United States. What? And offering support. Yeah. The, the Zimmerman telegram it was known as. So between that and the sinking of passenger ships, America finally entered the war after years of resistance. And in 1918, they began the Hundred Days Offensive, which begins with the Battle of Amiens, or however it's pronounced, that we see at the beginning of this episode. It does well. Uh, Germany is, is collapsing. And you can see in this episode, we didn't mention it before, but you can see toward the end of the scene, before they cut to Matthew and, and William being wounded. Right that the German soldiers are, are kneeling down and, and they're surrendering. Right. surrendering. Right. That started happening, which hadn't really happened much before. And Germany, at this point, began to be afraid that they would fall to a Bolshevik revolution. Uh. There was a very real possibility of that. And so they said, fine, we, we surrender. Yeah, it's like your populace isn't too keen on everyone they know getting killed for no reason. Yep. So uh, so that was World War One. Wow, what a horrible war. It was a very horrible war. I think in Europe it still gets, you know, sort of the attention that it merits. Well, yeah, uh, because it was, you know, a much bigger impact on them than America mm-hmm. that only came in at the end. Because, but we all just well, that's where the the red poppies come from, yes, right? Because you still see those, yeah, uh, a lot of times on British shows, that yeah, are, you're doing with, with veterans and that kind of thing, yeah, Remembrance Day mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing, right? You know, whereas to us we're just taught that it was just sort of this like prequel to World War uh-huh. Two. No, I mean, I know more about World War II than I did about World War One, and they're vastly different wars. Yeah. I mean, just in, in the terms of the fighting of them and, mm-hmm. and, and the reasoning behind the war. Yeah. Plenty of horrible and atrocious things happened in World War Two, but there were at least intelligible reasons for, for almost mm-hmm. all of it. Well, I mean, you know, there was, there was a real evil that needed to be combated. It wasn't this thing about, about you know, territory. Right. I mean, there was, you know, territory was in there. Right. And I'm sure if it hadn't been, it wouldn't have necessarily gotten the support from the Allied forces that it did. Right. But there's real evil happening in Germany mm-hmm. at that point, and people were moved by that. But, yeah. You know, God. Yeah. World War One, man. Yeah. Not cool. No. World War One. Not cool. Not cool at all. Well, that was, I think, the most depressing edition of Tom Repeats History to date. I you do really, my best. You've really outdone yourself. I'm, I'm looking forward to Series 3 when we get back to not being depressed all the time, and maybe they all take a trip to Weimar, Germany, before everything goes to shit. <laughs> so back to the recap, then. Lord Grantham goes down to the hospital to see Matthew, and he's in the midst of a very awful-looking exam where, mm-hmm. where Major Clarkson appears to be sort of prodding his wounds yeah. to determine if he can feel where he's pressing or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Mary is actually behind the screen watching the awful exam. Lord Grantham has also brought Lavinia with mm-hmm. him. And Mary is talking to Lord Grantham and Lavinia, saying that Major Clarkson thinks there's going to be trouble with Matthew's legs. At this point, Major Clarkson himself comes over and confirms to the three of them that Matthew will not walk again. Yeah. So Lavinia breaks down and cries, and Major Clarkson asks Lord Grantham to join him in the hall for what I'm sure is only good news. <laughs> Mary gives Lavinia a handkerchief because Lavinia confesses that she never seems to have a handkerchief in a crisis, which is a very endearing line. Yes. 
So out in the hall, Lord Grantham asks Major Clarkson if he means that there can be no children, and there can't be. There yes. Is, there is... That is what was revealed off screen. Yeah. The sexual reflex, Major Clarkson says, is controlled lower in the spine than the use of the leg. So if one is gone, then so is the other. And Lord Grantham, apparently no problem discussing penises. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, you know he has one. It's true. You can You can see it. It's like out there. It's got no secrets. It's not trying to trick him. <laughs> no, but uh, he's upset. But he goes back into the the ward and, and asks Mary to give Lavinia and Matthew a moment alone. And uh, Lavinia goes into Matthew's weird screened-off area, and he says, My darling. And I don't know why. Just like, as we're watching it, all I can think of is the beginning of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> and I'm like... But who could ever learn to love a beast? <laughs> and then Lavinia starts singing. Uh, <laughs> poor Matthew. Yeah. Mrs. Hughes gets on a bus with some baskets, uh, arrives somewhere, and knocks on a door. It is Ethel. Boo! <laughs> well, Ethel takes out a loaf of bread. She's living in squalor, more or less. And they discuss that Major Bryant is not interested in seeing his baby. Further, further proof that he is a jerk? Yes. Because who doesn't, like, even if you don't want to take care of it, come on, you at least want to see your baby, I, it's right? It's a baby, come it's on. It's a baby! Like, Major. granted, it's not a very cute baby. <laughs> like, look at what it had to work with his parents. You know, yeah. it's doing the best it can. Yeah, you're no prize yourself there, Major Bryant. <laughs> yeah, the baby right. was born with a mustache, if you're wondering. <laughs> Mrs. Hughes is not willing to show too much sympathy for the dirty, dirty whore that is Ethel. But she is willing to feed her. Yeah. Uh, which... At great risk, apparently. Right. It's not clear if she's purchasing the food... I she, think, says no, she, she says she's feeding her out of the house. Okay, so... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it is, you know... Well, maybe part of her reasoning is that since they don't have another housemaid, you know, Mrs. Patmore is still, like, cooking the same amount of food for the servants Could or something. Could be. Or, I mean, you know, just basic human decency. She's not... You know, Mrs. Hughes doesn't exactly wish Ethel ill. She just refuses to go against social norms, you know. She, right. Well, she thinks the rules exist and the rules exist for a reason. Right. And she is not, you know, she's old enough that it's kind of hard to change that. Right. Also, maybe she shouldn't be allowed to have access to the store key. <laughs> also, also, when Mrs. Patmore and Mrs. Bird were running their soup kitchen, which I assume they're still doing, but there's no evidence that they are, mm. how do they get the food? Because they don't have the store key. Hmm. So, anyway. Yeah. Continuity issues when we finally have our sit-down with Barry and Julian Fellows. <laughs> yes. Which I'm sure I'll get around to scheduling sometime. His manager's so hard to reach. <laughs> Mrs. Patmore forces Daisy to go in to see William. Daisy resists. She's feeling very uncomfortable with the whole situation. Uh, but she does go in eventually to see William, who's looking puffier than usual. Hmm. Must be all the dying. <laughs> yeah. Edith is making him drink something, presumably an opiate. He's mm-hmm. very excited to see Daisy. She comes over and holds his hand, and he tells her he wants her to meet his dad. Uh, Daisy is not... She doesn't want to meet his dad. She's she's like, oh, I was just holding you for a friend. Like, it's not... <laughs> yeah. I don't want this. But William asks if Daisy would consider marrying him now and not wait, you know, until after the war like they'd planned. And then Edith helpfully jumps in and suggests that what William needs is rest, not excitement. Right. So well, she, I mean... Edith presumably has no idea what's been going on, but she presumably also notices that Daisy doesn't immediately say, yes, right. yes. <laughs> A thousand times, yes. <laughs> 
In Mrs. Hughes's parlor, or whatever that room is, a woman is being interviewed. Mrs. Hughes is reviewing her references. She is married, which is very unusual, mm-hmm. and has and has a child who she says that her mother will take care of down in the village while she is working. Uh, Mrs. Hughes is very reluctant about the whole thing, but she says she'll bring it up to Mr. Carson. And the woman insists that she is a good worker and that she must earn. My reaction to this scene is uh, uh, another new character. Mm -hmm. Like, what is this, Game of Thrones? My reaction is, uh, you're falling behind on your ginger quota, Mrs. Hughes. (laughs) Uh, I'm not real impressed. This lady is a brunette. Chop, chop. So Matthew is hallucinating about Mary. She appears to be, like, in front of a church or something. So maybe he's mashing up his dates with Edith, with Mary. It's very confusing. (laughs) Could be. Uh, As is, I'm sure, recovering from a serious war injury. Yeah. Uh, But anyway, he's not really hallucinating, because she's actually sitting with him and and saying his name. Mm -hmm. Also, the number six has been carved on his face, which is very disconcerting. It's very weird, kind of creepy. Uh, Like, is that the mark of the beast? Uh, Should we be concerned? He is. is. Do you plan to name your male heir that you won't have Damien? I mean, he is fairly charming. He could be the antichrist All right fair enough <laughs> he asks after lavinia mary informs him that lavinia is unpacking in her room then matthew asks after william and mary tells him that he's he's not doing so well and also that they have yet to hear from matthew's mother isabel he tells her that he he's experiencing the strangest thing he can't move or feel his legs mm-hmm. he wants to know what's up with that and Mary says that they should wait for Lavinia before they start, you know, telling Matthew the horrible truth about his future. <laughs> but he insists that Mary tell him, and she basically says that he has spinal damage and that his legs won't necessarily repair themselves. Well, she like she basically doesn't tell him anything. She just he keeps asking her to say that his legs will get better and she won't say that. Mm-hmm. Thus he puts two and two together. Yeah. Say what you will about Matthew. He is not entirely stupid. Yes. So he's having this big emotional reaction, and she just goes, would you like some tea? (laughs) I would. (laughs) Which is very like Jenna on 30 Rock kind of thing to do. (laughs) But, uh, you know, she's just doing the British thing of avoiding emotion, and and he thanks her for telling him, even though she didn't actually tell him. And he he says, oh, you know, I I know I'm blubbing, but but I'd rather know than not know. And blubbing ensues for everyone, including me and my cold, dead heart. (laughs) It's very sad. Up in the Great Hall, Major Bryant is there. I think we didn't mention in the last scene, but he's coming back to the convalescent hall to meet up with some old friends. And Ethel was saying she wanted to send him a letter to be hand-delivered by Mrs. Hughes. Right. Uh, So Mrs. Hughes calls him over and indeed... Hand delivers, hand delivers the letter to him, or at least holds it out to him. Which he does not take. He keeps his hands behind his back, and he says, uh, and refuses to take it. She says, oh, but if you could just see him, he's a lovely wee chap. Mm-hmm. And he says, the last thing I would wish to be is rude, mm-hmm. but you really must allow me to make my own way in this, or something along those lines. Boo! 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 Child abandoner! Boo! We hate you! I hope you die! He's, it's the most evil person on Downton. Yeah, I mean, he really even gives Thomas and O'Brien a run for their money. It's yeah. just... Like, they're, they're, they have some complexity, some depth. He is just an asshole. An asshole with a mustache. Yeah, it's just really... Oof. 
Now we cut to Sir Richard Carlyle, because apparently Mary has, has made the trek to London, as she said she would, and he's chuckling about the cold and careful Lady Mary Crawley having a very scandalous uh, secret in her closet. <laughs> mm-hmm. He wonders if she still expects him to marry her, and she says that it's up to him. He kind of monologues for a bit in classic supervillain fashion about how her family will think that she's giving him a tremendous leg up with society. His children will go to all the best schools. They'll be received in the best houses. But he says that they, too, will know that that is not the whole story, that he is lending her credibility since she has uh, blotted her copybook, <laughs> yes. as Aunt Rosamond once said. She uh, very properly and politely tells him how to handle things. And and she says, you know, if you want to call it off, they haven't announced it. It's not a big deal. She understands. But, you know, she needs she, yeah. you know, she needs this favor from him. So he says that he can, if he can pull it off and, and, and neutralize Mrs. Bates, that they'll be entering their marriage on far more equal terms than he twirls an imaginary mustache. <laughs> yes. Anyway, she offers to repay him for buying off Mrs. Bates, but he is actually creepily happy about his future wife going into things in his debt. Yeah. Also, side note in this scene, Mary is apparently dressed to go play Cardinal Richelieu in a production of Three Musketeers. <laughs> it's a strange outfit. It's the Scarlet Letter, man. <laughs> She's wearing leather gloves. That was my favorite shot of the scene, yeah. the establishing shot. You just see her right hand clenching and unclenching in this leather glove and Mm -hmm. it was just it was very effective yeah well done baron fellows (laughs) in again presumably the small library if it is the small library by the way it is roughly the size of our apartment (laughs) just just for the record carson tells lord grantham that a local woman jane morsom with a small son has applied to be a a housemaid he does not point out that she's not a ginger so i guess all the rules have gone out the window (laughs) during (laughs) wartime All the gingers are at the front. (laughs) (laughs) She's a widow, we now learn in this scene. Her husband was killed in the war, so it's less scandalous that she would be working. So Lord Grantham basically says, yes, we should do our part to support war widows. Then McGee bustles in and says, well, first of all, says that Carson should have been talking to her about the new maid, which is true. That's her, her domain. But Lord Grantham says, oh, they thought that she would be too busy and she says, I am too busy. In fact, I can't go to the Townsends this weekend. You'll have to make my excuses, which... He says we gave them the date, and she's just like, whatever. I don't care. Yeah. And I mean, look, I'm totally on her side here, because what have you done since this war started but sit on your ass and read a newspaper? <laughs> well, this whole time, he continues to hold the newspaper throughout both of these conversations, and then has, like, this woeful look on his face at the end. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, my life is so hard. People occasionally interrupt me while I'm reading. <laughs> Isis! Isis, I'm feeling melancholy! Now the Townsends, who we've never seen before and will never see again, are mad at me. I'm sure Isis would go. Just put her in a dress. (laughs) Lady Isis of the House Grantham. (laughs) How droll. (laughs) Downstairs in the kitchen, Daisy is telling Mrs. Patmore that Mrs. Patmore told her that she, Daisy, would never have to actually marry William. Mrs. Patmore tearfully tells her that he's dying and that it makes no difference, and Daisy says that it's worse to lie to him before he dies. Yeah. They both have a pretty solid moral argument, I think, right. on both their sides. I However, agree. my sympathies ultimately, ultimately lay with Daisy here because, I mean, come on. I guess it's been some years, but she still looks about 12. Yeah. You know? No, and 
I, mean, I haven't really gotten into this, but every time I see her in this whole episode, I'm like, oh, Daisy, I feel so bad for you. Yeah, like, because, I mean, she's just... And, I mean, she, she bears up well. I mean, right. she, she handles the situation, and she knows. Mm-hmm. She knows. She just wants one person to say, you know what, Daisy? It stinks that you're in this position, mm-hmm. and I understand that you don't want to do this, but it's really nice of you yeah. to do it anyhow. Well, because... Well, and then it's 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 a good thing. Like, it's not just that she's made this promise and has to follow through with it. It's just that you're doing him a kindness, Yeah, and it's okay that you don't feel right about it, but, you know... Right, well, and, and it's just that all these people keep trying to tell her this, but none of them understand... Like, none of them seem to really understand why she is so upset about it. Uh-huh. And they're just like, oh, you shouldn't feel bad. And that's that's not helping her. Well, but it may be, you know, at this time, it's still potentially a time where if a woman received any offer of marriage, she was just expected to take the first one that came down the pike, mm. particularly for the lower classes. Yeah, that could be. So that be. may be part of it, too. Yeah. In the hospital, Lavinia's telling Matthew that she doesn't care if he can't walk and that he must think her very feeble to think that that would make a difference to her. He appreciates that. He is so glad that she would say that, but he tells her that they can never be properly married, which she is momentarily confused by, but then she realizes what he is saying. No doing it! That is correct. You know, she's affected by it, but she, she insists, she says that that side of things isn't important to her, but he, he, he insists that they break up. He insists that she not marry him. Yeah, and at this point, John Lithgow comes in <laughs> and starts just chucking rocks at her, saying, We don't want you anymore! Go! Get out of here. <laughs> also, Lavinia, if you think that life married to a man without the full use of his legs is going to be a picnic, I would point you to the cautionary tale of Mr. Bates. <laughs> just saying. Yes. Yeah, no, it's it's a difficult scene. And yeah. again, it's weird. I don't know. Lavinia says that this side of things isn't important to her. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's like, well, is, well, it's like, has Matthew had sex before? Mm-hmm. I, I think yes. I think, and, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I believe that all of the upper class men have had sex. Okay. You know. And, well, I guess, you know, that whore in All Quiet on the Western Front got around. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just... It's just sort of my opinion based on, like, history. They're just exercising their sexual reflex. Right. I just I just don't think that they didn't go to all the trouble of, like, running society, if not to get laid. That's an excellent point. That is one of the primary motivators yeah. in uh, being the oppressor class. Mm-hmm. Getting to have sex with whatever you want, whenever you want. Mm-hmm. Just don't talk about it. Yeah. Whereas I think that, you know, when Lavinia says that that side of things isn't important to her, I think, you know, it's very possibly true. Mm-hmm. that And that she has no idea really... What sex is. Right. This is, well, quick side note, but uh, King Leopold of Belgium, who was actually right about this time, was still king. But earlier, uh, when Victoria was still alive, there it's hard to tell from history, but it appears that after he got married, neither he nor his wife knew how to have sex. And nobody could tell them until a few years later when he went to visit his cousin Victoria. Mm-hmm. And she finally took him aside while well, her and Albert took him aside and explained what sex was uh-huh. and how to do it. No, there's... Well, there's a similar scene in uh, Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette where mm. that happens, where uh, King Louis gets taken aside by Marie Antoinette's brother and he's like, you know how a key works? <laughs> it's kind of like that. <laughs> 
No, God, just what a horrible time. Like, yeah. I have a lot of issues with, like, sex education in the modern day, but at mm. least it exists. Yeah. You know, you're not just thrown headlong <laughs> into a marriage or adulthood. Just be like, well, the good Lord put it there. It's up to you to put it together. <laughs> Sybil foolishly goes into the garage to talk to Branson, who is behaving very petulantly when she orders the car to pick up Mary from the train. She's coming back from London. Mm -hmm. Branson asks about William in a rare moment of (laughs) non-dickery. Then she's saying, oh, you know, it doesn't look good. You know, it's just a matter of time. Then, apropos of nothing, he tells her that the Russians shot the Tsar and that he's sorry. But, you know, the future does require terrible sacrifices, which is a different attitude than he was displaying before which and i actually really appreciate that because that's generally true most people become attached to you know a political party or Mm -hmm. movement or whatever and wind up rationalizing whatever they do as being you know retroactively the right thing look and i don't agree like i'm not saying branson is correct i I appreciate appreciate the storytelling like, I understand, I, you know, I'm smart enough to put the, the things together, but I would have liked to see in his performance, and if it's he's going through this transformation where he's going from, you know, just a, like a sort of sympathetic radical who's into nonviolence and then moving into, you know, a much more accepting of violence position, I would have liked to have seen that because I think it informs the way that he's treating Sybil. Yeah. And I'm yeah. not saying that would make him more sympathetic. I'm just saying it would be understandable. Yeah. And it's just, I just... Yeah, I just shouldn't... feel like we get dropped into their story at the most stupid moments, and it's just not all fitting together. You know, I think that if you're, you know, an obsessive who's doing a podcast about the show and watches it a bunch, you can <laughs> fill in all the blanks. But that's not going to be most people. Right. Thank God. Or, well, I yeah. hope not. Yeah. Otherwise, we all need to start a support group. <laughs> he tells her that she used to believe that the future requires terrible sacrifices, which she's a nurse, dude. She's making <laughs> plenty of terrible sacrifices every day. Yeah. But she reminds him that they've agreed to put their politics aside until the end of the war. And she's, they're referring specifically to the women's suffrage uh-huh. at this point. She tells him not to badger her about it and moves to leave. And he touches her hip, which is the most sexual thing we've actually seen anyone do yeah. this entire series. That's that's correct. Uh, well, you know, series one had Kamal and Mary doing their thing. Right. But we didn't see any. Actually, no. The only more sexual thing we've seen was Major Bryant and Ethel. Correct. Okay. Good point. Yeah. But this one actually feel like there's, mm. it, it, you know, despite all of our short shortcomings that we've assigned on this plot, it's very electric. Yeah. We've never seen anybody kind of touch someone intimately. And, and yeah. he starts babbling about hard sacrifices and how a future worth having requires hard sacrifices. And she almost kisses him, which is weird because yeah. to me... Well, also, like, that's your selling point. Like, marry me. It'll be just like murdering the czar and his family. Like, <laughs> I'll tell you proposed to me. <laughs> Man, I was drunk. <laughs> On the vodka. <laughs> anyway, so she almost kisses him but doesn't and runs away. To which I say, run, Sybil, run. Run with Anna. Go off. Be lesbians <laughs> or something. You could both do better. Yeah. Oh, also, by the way, he, he says that Sylvia Pankhurst wanted to continue the suffrage movement during the war. Which interested me, so I went and looked her up, and she is, in fact, the daughter of Emmeline Pankhurst, who was one of the leading uh, suffragettes, one of the leading militants, mm-hmm. and was also a pacifist and a communist. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and that makes perfect sense, you know? 
you know, because they're going to reject the entire rhetoric of the war. Right, exactly. So there's yeah. obviously no reason to stop. Right. Uh, that That is exactly correct. Very like our American Emma Goldman, if I may say so. You're, you may. I just did. <laughs> In Carlisle's office, he is laying down the law with Mrs. Bates, who is there. He's saying that she's going to need to sign an exclusive contract, that she once she signs this contract, she cannot talk th- about this story with anybody else that he has all the lawyers in London and will destroy her, etc., etc. And he also asks her, you know, what it is that has caused her to want to bring this family into ruin. And she just says, "My husband works for them, and we're not on good terms," right. which is the least good reason I have ever heard. <laughs> Because they didn't do anything to her. Yeah. They didn't do anything to her. Well, the problem is that she doesn't know the correct answer, which is, I am a sociopath. Oh. Or she does know it and is correctly concealing it, thinking that she can prevent Sir Richard from finding out the truth. Right. Downstairs in the servants' hall, Mrs. Hughes finds Daisy and says that Mr. Mason is now aware of how dire the situation with his son is Mm -hmm. and that William is asking to see Daisy. And she is again crying and talking about how bad she feels for lying. And Mrs. Hughes is just like, look, I'm dealing with a bastard child of a ginger. I can't. (laughs) Yeah. I can't do everything. The opening shot is of Daisy looking off into the distance while turning the handle on a sifter. And it just looks like there's no flour in there. She's just been doing that for hours. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's what I do to calm my nerves. (laughs) When Mrs. Patmore starts yelling at me, it makes me think of how the sun goes round and how I always have to work in this kitchen. And I wish I hadn't told William that I loved him. Oopsie Daisy. (laughs) Oopsie Daisy takes a tragic turn in this episode. <laughs> Everything I write takes a tragic turn. <laughs> in William's room, Mr. Mason is there sitting with him, and, and William asks him to step out. Daisy says, there's no need for that, there's no need, but William says there is a need. Uh, that is my least favorite line of dialogue, because it doesn't sound natural coming out of his mouth. Yeah. I don't see William saying, there is a need. Yeah. No, I, I see what you're saying. Uh, I mean, once again, I think it'll be exciting when we're doing something that's not Downton Abbey and I can stop. (laughs) Yeah. I can stop playing fan fiction mastermind. Like, (laughs) he would say that. (laughs) But William says that he's dying and cuts her off when she tries to be like, oh, no, you know, he's he's dying. Um, It took me five days to figure it out, but. Yeah. Well, presumably people wouldn't tell him per Mm -hmm. se. In any case, he says that he wants her to marry him because then she will get a war widow's pension and rights. This um, is the closest William ever comes to self-awareness mm-hmm. about this or anything. Yeah. Uh, but it's really, really kind of him. Yeah, it is. Well, and he just, you know, it's it's the one thing. He can leave something behind uh-huh. him if he does that. He can know that she'll always have something to fall back on no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. And this is, I, you know, it makes me very uh, weepy myself no i'm just thinking about it and it's really hard yeah but daisy says that it would be like cheating to do it just for that pension or whatever but he says it wouldn't be because they love each other and and daisy internally goes wah wah (laughs) i wish i had my flower sifter (laughs) yeah so it's so it's rough yeah then she goes out in the hall and mr mason has been waiting outside the door and he asks if daisy said yes 
and she kind of dithers a little bit, and he also pressures her into marrying William and, and saying, you know, he really wants this. Please give him this last thing. It's that you're the most important thing in the world to him. Which, God, like, coming from his dad. Like, yeah. you've known your dad way longer, bro. Yeah. Marry your dad. <laughs> but, oh, uh, and I have to say, the actor who plays Mr. Mason. Yeah. One of the best performances in the show yeah period i mean because he's got i mean to this point like two minutes of screen time or and something he just but he just you know it's it's the costume it's the hair it's the mustache but just he just you can totally see how william is this guy's son yeah and and also just what a good and and decent man and just how deeply affected he is mm-hmm. and we have to stop talking about it because <laughs> i'm gonna start crying again yeah this really is the cryingest episode of downton abbey absolutely Absolutely. Speaking of crying, <laughs> Lavinia is crying in her bed uh, with the door open. Mm. But Mary uh, has heard her sobs and comes in, and Lavinia <laughs> asks how Mary's trip to London was, which is like getting shot and then being like, oh, how's your mom? <laughs> Anyway, so she tells Mary how Matthew cut her loose and told her to go home and never come back again. Yeah. Mary tells her, you know, if she wants to be with Matthew, she mustn't give up. And Mary here, speaking from personal experience, she's like, no, don't drop the reins for a second. Because before you know it, it'll be Lavinia (laughs) 2.0. Lavinia then reveals that she and Matthew can never be lovers. Which is the most direct way that anybody puts it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, well done there. Oh, and this scene is great. I, Zoe Boyle is the actress who plays Lavinia, and she plays this scene fantastically because mm-hmm. she's just crying and she's saying, you know, anyone with a brain would have known. Right. But I had no idea. And yeah. Mary, like, slowly sits down in her own shell shock because you got to figure at least a part of her, like, even not consciously, is like, oh, if, if he doesn't get with her, like, maybe. Right, right, right. Something. Because she said earlier, you know, Matthew was saying, oh, who could ever want to be with me? Right. And um, she was like, you know, what if somebody just wanted to be with you? Mm-hmm. It's like, who could ever love me? Yeah. So, yeah, Mary had not realized either the extent yeah. of the damage. And, yeah. and Lavinia announces that she will die if she cannot be with Matthew. Mm-hmm. At breakfast, I presume, Lord Grantham is reading the newspaper. And what does he find in there but in a wedding announcement starring Mary? Mm-hmm. It is the announcement of the engagement between Mary and uh, Richard Carlyle, who is uh, Scottish, by the way, which uh-huh. I probably should... Anyone with a brain would have known, <laughs> but I did not particularly Well, realize. and again, considering how disdainful Lord Grantham is about his daughter, she's awfully upset when their names get put in the newspaper. Yeah. To be fair, I would not want to read about a relative's wedding announcement in the newspaper. Yeah, but I mean, he kind of knew about it. Right, Like, right. she told... Anyway. Yeah, yeah. But Mary is just as surprised as he is, and... Edith is just abused. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's finally found a tree, and it's making fun of Mary's misfortune. <laughs> Carson then comes in and tells Lord Grantham that they kind of need to know if the wedding uh, between William and Daisy is going to happen. I I don't think we mentioned before, but Daisy had also said that maybe the vicar wouldn't Uh perform the wedding. And so that Carson's like, we we need to get this figured out, you know, that there isn't long. Today is kind of like the day. Yeah. Over in the Dower House, the vicar, Mr. Travis, is imperiously asking the Dowager Countess if Daisy is just some grasping widow after uh, a pension. Which, essentially, yes, but she's not really the grasping one yeah. in this situation. 
But the Dowager Countess says, you know, she can't believe he's refusing to perform this ceremony just on the off chance that somebody might get a pittance from the government out of it. And she tells him that she will attend this wedding and that his salary comes out of Lord Grantham's gift. So maybe he should nut up and help a dying man out if he wants flowers in his church or a job. Yeah. No, it's it's pretty great. I mean, because he – it goes on for probably a minute. He Uh keeps trying to interrupt her or he keeps trying to say something and she keeps cutting him off. Yeah. And she says, among other things, that she had tried to keep William out of this war, and, you know, there's no way that she is not going Uh to make his dying wish come true. Yeah. And it's... She's really the fairy godmother of Downton Abbey. Yes. (laughs) Fortunately, she does not have to escalate to physical threats, but she would have put that cane through his head if she had Uh to. (laughs) Uh-huh. Down in the bastard house in the village... (laughs) (laughs) If we ever get our own house, let's name it Bastard House. <laughs> Put on party invitations. <laughs> Mrs. Hughes is telling Ethel about the dickitude of Major Bryant. Which is considerable. Yeah. And Ethel's like, tell me about it. I <laughs> saw it. <laughs> she doesn't say that. She's very sad. Yes, she is very sad. Not in a, not in a joke-making mode. No, not at all. They discuss how horrible Ethel's life is. Which uh, is pretty horrible. Yeah, quite horrible. Well, because she can't get any work. Right. Because she says she's she's gotten a bit of scrubbing, but she has to take the baby everywhere with her, mm-hmm. and nobody believes her story that she's telling that her, her baby's father, her husband, died at the front. Right. But nobody is buying it. Right. Which causes Mrs. Hughes to reflect on the fact that Jane, who she just hired, is telling the same story and is being treated perfectly well, but she says the difference is that we believe her story, mm-hmm. which is... Yeah, kind of a... It's kind of backhanded. Right. But at the same time, I I read that as Mrs. Hughes starting to be like, wait a minute, maybe this isn't fair. Yeah. Maybe her decision to have sex with Major Bryant shouldn't be punished with a lifetime of poverty and despair. Mm-hmm. Just, eh, yeah. maybe. Could be. Mrs. Bates bursts into Sir Richard Carlyle's office over the protestations of his secretary <laughs> and threatens Carlyle, but he threatens her right back. And frankly, yeah. that is a threatening dude. <laughs> he shook a baby named Lavinia. <laughs> like, you don't want to mess with him. So she's blabbing on about how, all right, she won't, you know, go to any of the papers with her story, but, you know, she's going to ruin John Bates. And Sir Richard does not give a fuck. Well, he, he, is, he does no, not he's know like, who John Bates no, is. No, he's like, who? Is that your husband you're talking about? Because I only care about the honor of this lady that I'm going to marry. Because that's why Mrs. Bates was upset. Right. Because she saw the wedding wedding announcement and was like, oh my God, I totally got swindled. She sure did. Uh, Although he still gave her a bunch of money. He's just the greediest sociopath. They just always want more, more, more. At least Thomas knows when to take a breather for a little while. Yeah. Jane busts into... Presumably the small library. Uh, God, this whole series is in the small <laughs> library now. I hate it. Yeah. Uh, but she bustles in and says, where do you want me to start? But it's Lord Grantham there. Not Anna. Yep. So she is quite embarrassed, rightly so. But they have a, a short discussion about how Lord Grantham says that we owe her late husband a great debt. And Mrs. Hughes comes in, chews Jane off to the drawing room where she should have been, uh, and says that she's, she's very willing, but she's not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. And then tells Lord Grantham that there is a phone call for Lady Mary. Which, why could she just tell Lady Mary herself? Well, maybe she thought Lady Mary was in there. I don't know. It is the only place they can go, apparently. That's right. So. Downstairs, Daisy's all gussied up, and unfortunately, it is not a pretty sight. Mm. Uh, she doesn't gussy up too well. It's but, just not her natural state. I guess so. 
Carson comes in and brings her some flowers that have been sent up by the gardener, has kindly made her a bouquet, and she whines again about how it's all a lie and it's so terrible. Off in the in the servants' hallway, O'Brien and Thomas kind of snark about uh, the wedding and the blooming bride yeah. or something like that. O'Brien's doing one of her stock things where it's like, oh, a picture of true love's romance. I don't think so. Like, shut yeah. up, O'Brien. Yeah. But anyway, Who cares uh, what you think? Apparently, Thomas is planning to attend the wedding, which surprises O'Brien, but he said he would like to shake William's hand before he goes. Yeah. O'Brien uh, asked the question we're all wondering, is that sentiment or superstition in case he haunts you? <laughs> yeah. Mrs. Hughes comes in and announces that the vicar has arrived and Carson offers his arm because he is going to be the one giving Daisy away at the wedding. Yes. Uh, William's room is covered in flowers. Uh, they're all, all along the bed and all along the walls. Um, and we get shots of everybody at the, who is there at the wedding, many of whom are on the verge of tears. Much like we are here recording this podcast. Yeah. And also, actually, a shot that I appreciated was we also get a shot of Jane, who mm-hmm. is, you know, just very, like... You know, respectful, but is not, you know, she doesn't know right. either of the two of them. And it's, it, I just, I don't know why I like that shot. It must be a shot. strange thing to go to the wedding of a dying man on your first day at work. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I, I felt that uh, she looked the right way. I don't mm-hmm. know. The, you know, the vicar is there and performing the wedding and Daisy kisses William. And the Dowager Countess is there. The the family is all there. And yes. it's, it's just extremely touching and very, very sad. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really sad, dude. Yes. So, we will transition now to something that never makes us sad. <laughs> uh, a segment with Kelly that we call Fashion Backwards. Yeah, so I thought today we would focus sort of on the etiquette and trappings of marriage in Edwardian England. Mm-hmm. I tried to look up World War One weddings to figure out. They had to have been happening. Right. Uh, but there wasn't a whole lot of information. So, I would assume, because we're, strictly speaking at this point, we're kind of getting out of the Edwardian period. I mean, right. some people would say that, you know, we started this this series back in 1912 in the post-Edwardian period. But right. basically, uh, the quote that I pulled from Edwardian Promenade says, the typical Edwardian woman wished to see her name printed in the newspapers, but thrice in her lifetime, at birth, at marriage, and at death. So, you know, Lady Mary working very hard to make sure that is, in fact, the case. (laughs) Yes. Because at the time, for members of society, if you were getting married, your name would be in the paper a lot around your wedding. There would be a lot of society pages devoted to, you know, your trousseau, your gifts, who was in your wedding party, the details of the ceremony, Mm. all that kind of thing that, you know, I'm sure the Daily Sketch had a pretty hefty section devoted to that sort of thing right well i mean that's just as true today mm-hmm. no exactly i was thinking about it i was like i was thinking that it was so foreign but it's only foreign if you think about it in the context of like normal middle class people like us getting married right as opposed to say like the kardashians exactly. and you know reese witherspoon or whoever yeah and edwardian weddings were extremely lavish and complex and there were dozens of etiquette books to ensure that you could you know throw an appropriate wedding and also to help you kind of navigate how you should be dealing with the press throughout your wedding. So very similar to today in that mm-hmm. there were way more wedding books than weddings. <laughs> yeah. In Britain, and this kind of ties into Daisy's wedding, the legally recognized time for weddings was between 8 a.m. and 12 noon. Hmm. Although at this point in history, it was starting to become common to wed in the afternoon. I think that was an American custom. Hmm. Uh, 2.30 being the most fashionable time to wed. That was just hmm. fashionable. All right. At 2.30. So it... 
seems to me that this wedding of daisies has to be in the later afternoon because Mrs. Hughes has gone down to visit Ethel. Right. Jane started her first day and had to clean and everything. So it would have to be in the afternoon break time, I would think. So it's not entirely clear to me how they skirted that legal issue because generally to make sure that an afternoon wedding was legitimate, you had to get a license from the Archbishop of Canterbury, which cost 30 pounds. Wow. And not only that, I mean, took a while to obtain. I mean, there's no time for them to get that dispensation in the space of this narrative. So I don't know if that's just narrative economy or, or if there were different standards for commoners. Mm -hmm. Cheaper options for a typical marriage included marriage by bands. Uh, You hear that phrase in Shakespeare all the time. Reading the bands means for a parish to announce or print in their bulletin, I guess the intended nuptials of a bride and groom once a week for three consecutive weeks but they have to have both resided in the same parish for 15 days prior to the first announcement. Okay. So I think in that sense, you don't actually have to have a wedding. Okay. You you just, you know, it's kind of like saying, you know, you're married, you're married, you're married three times and you're married. Right. Like everybody knows mm-hmm. you're not trying to pull one over on anybody. Yeah. You know, if you try to get out of it later, people are like, uh, I heard the band. <laughs> yeah. You're married. Yeah. Uh, well, I've always been under the impression that it was partly, yeah, to announce to everybody that you were getting married and partly to give everybody three weeks to be like, hey, that person's already married. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah, whatever. The other option is the regular marriage license, well, which you can get locally through your parish or through uh, the clerk. Mm-hmm. It only required the bride or groom to live in their chosen parish for 15 days before applying. So it didn't matter which one of them was living oh, where okay. they were planning to live as long as they had been there for 15 days. There was also a $2 fee along with tips for the clergyman who performed the service and a clerk who legalized the marriage. Okay. And interestingly, all fees and associated wedding expenses in Britain at this time were the groom's responsibility. Mm. The tradition of the bride's family footing the bill is an American one, which if uh, McGee's family adhered to that, I'm sure the Granthams were very grateful (laughs) as they had no money. Yeah. At the time, wedding dresses were white and very modest, uh, made of high-quality materials because six months prior to the wedding itself, the bride could wear it to all occasions requiring full dress. So if it was a long engagement, she could go out and remind everyone that she was getting married and she was better than them. Well, that's that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. No, it's much more economical. Yeah. English weddings did not have receptions following the ceremony. Rather, Mm. they did a pre-wedding champagne brunch with the family of the bride and the groom to toast the impending marriage. Oh, nice. Uh, and that custom never caught on in America. Uh, obviously, we prefer to get shit-faced afterward, which right. personally, I, as an American, I have to say is way more fun. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'd have a champagne brunch every day if I could. Mm, I'd have a champagne brunch right now. <laughs> and again, I didn't find a whole lot on lower-class marriages, so I'm curious how the vicar was able to perform this marriage and have it be legal. Mm -hmm. Because obviously a big part of the reason that they're doing it is the legality of Daisy being William's widow. Right. And and being able to collect her pension. Right. So I don't know if it's if it's something different or if it's just narrative economy again. Right. The one thing that I did find in a very interesting article on food shortages Hmm. because there were terrible food shortages all over Britain and we get no sense of that from right, the show. Right. Except for the fact that Ethel has nothing to eat. Yeah. Uh, but that seemed you know, that's presented as situational. It's not an epidemic. Right. But you know, the custom of throwing rice at a wedding became a criminal offense. Oh. Uh, at least socially, if not legally. Wow. Uh, because I mean, there was no food. Yeah. You know, we'll have to yeah. talk about this in a later episode, but there just was no food. Mm-hmm. People in the country weren't as affected, but I mean there just wasn't food for people to eat. Yeah. 
So that's what I have on British weddings okay. at this time period. Uh, I will continue to check and see if there's any more info on that and pass it along because I'm like, what did the poor people do? Because <laughs> you can see, obviously, Daisy's dressed very modestly and just right, in a nice right. dress. But I just kind of assume for all of wartime, yeah, everything is simpler. And, and in Mary's letter to Matthew in a previous episode where she was saying that they're waiting until after the war to set a date for the wedding. Mm-hmm. I assume that's in part because, you know, throwing a lavish wedding in the middle of a war is, is disrespectful. And, right. and clearly people don't really have the resources to do so. Right. All right. Well, thank you, Kelly. You're welcome. Always a pleasure to do Fashion Backwards. Mm-hmm. So back at the hospital, Mary is talking to Matthew, who sort of hints at why he couldn't marry any woman, even even if she just wanted to be with him. And then all of a sudden he says that he's going to be sick and Mary pulls over a, a bowl and, to, and holds it for him to vomit into. And Matthew says that it's, it's funny how uh, it seems like just the other day he was turning her down and uh, now look at him. <laughs> Fair enough. It's hilarious. Isabel then walks into the hospital and sees Mary taking care of her son. And she's she's impressed with him with with her, and she says so. And he she just you know dismisses yeah she her just praise. says oh Sybil's the nurse in this family, which yeah. I kind of have to like if it wasn't Matthew, Mary wouldn't be lifting a finger. Right, it's true. Oh, did I mention that I was crying in this? Because I was crying. It's definitely yeah. Well, I mean, it's Isabel, and it wasn't just because I was so happy to see Harriet Jones again. Right, but we we love her in this scene as we have pretty much throughout. She's great. <laughs> Out in the hall, Mary runs into Bates and asks how uh, William's doing. He says, you know, it's pretty much just a matter of time, and and Daisy and and her father are sitting with him. So Mary wasn't at the wedding. I don't Mm -hmm. think I made that clear, but uh, she wasn't there. She was with Matthew. And Mary tells Bates that Vera's essentially got a gag order on the story from Sir Richard Carlyle, but she has been threatening Bates. Uh, Carlyle did pass that information along to her, which was classy for a supervillain, I thought. (laughs) Anna comes in after Mary leaves, and she's very relieved to hear that Vera is supposed to shut her bitch mouth. Yeah, well, she says, so everything in our garden is rosy again. And Mr. Bates says, I hope so. I certainly hope so. And I'm like, so, no? Is that what you're saying? Is it more daffodil? <laughs> in William's bedroom, uh, Mrs. Patmore enters the room. He's he's lying there, still wheezing. She offers to Daisy to sit in for her and let her go uh, get some rest, but she says she won't leave, not while he still needs me. Mm-hmm. But then Mr. Mason says that he doesn't need you. He doesn't need any of us anymore because he is dead. And and now we have to take a pause so we can <laughs> cry. Yeah. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> and that... <laughs> The episode ends on that appropriately... Depressing note. Depressing note, yeah. So now, (laughs) in a stark contrast, it is time for everybody's favorite. (laughs) The Abbey Awards! The Abbey Awards! There's no crying in the Abbey Awards, Tom. You're right. All snark, no sentiment. (laughs) Yes. Pull yourself together, man. All right, I'm back. All right, so... Gibson Girl, not too impressed with anybody. However, we have chosen this week to give it to Sybil for her very cute nurse's uniform, which we have not passed any sort of comment on all That's season. True. And it looks very good on her. You it know, does. she's very efficient. Yeah. I do prefer her, her headpiece being kind of pinned yeah. versus flowing. She yeah. looks just better. Yeah. Well, less like, I don't know, a nun yeah, or something. Yeah, but like a weird nun. Yeah. 
<laughs> Renegade Nun. For best evasion, uh, well, there were a lot of euphemisms flying around. That's true. Uh, in the uh, Department of Matthew's nethers. <laughs> right. So people were evading saying the word sex quite a bit. That they were. I mean, entirely successfully. Yeah. That. Um... Mrs. Hughes is evading detection in her scheme to assist Ethel. Moreover, Major Bryant Major completely Bright, yeah. evading his child and his responsibilities. That was, I mean, and that's like the bold-faced, no-bones-about-it evasion. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. You know, I had some other ideas, but I, I feel like we kind of got to give it to that guy. Yeah, I think you're like, right. Like, he just, he didn't even know. He never addressed it once. Yeah. So, Congratulations, Major Bryant. You've won Best Evasion, and that's not a compliment. No, we hate you. And uh, this episode, Best Overbite, goes to Mr. Travis, the asshole vicar. <laughs> Congratulations, sir. You're a dick. <laughs> Which brings us to the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths. We had last week our first ever one rating. Right. Which, again, we'd like to remind you, is still above every Woman, man, child, plant, <laughs> animal, you name it. That's correct. Still head and shoulders above that. Yes. Certainly, I think, better this week. I mean, I think her whole thing with the vicar, mm-hmm. I just really enjoyed and That definitely elevates it. Yeah. She, again, she wasn't there that much. I wasn't too crazy about her scene with, with Major Clarkson. It was, you know, it was just kind of like a lot of, like, windbaggery. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I feel, I feel like it was a two. All right. I might have leaned more towards three, but it's it's... I think I, I think two is fair. All right. Yeah. Like so again, if she had been in more, maybe she could have worked up to a three. Mm-hmm. But I think I think it's a two. We're we're pretty much at the halfway point here, Mags. You know, you got some room to grow. So uh, yeah. we'll be we'll be looking for a lot from you on these in these last episodes. That we will. And I believe that does it for this recap of Downton Abbey series two episode five. All right. So until next week, up, up yours downstairs. downstairs. in your pipe and smoke it.
put that in your pipe and smoke it.